So today in the Reading Corner, excited to be catching up with Martin Jenkins, who's a writer uh, of information books or nonfiction uh, for children, particularly around the themes of conservation and uh, animals. We're going to be talking today about to Martin about his career and his latest books, Animal Babies and Animal Homes. Uh, welcome into the Reading Corner, Martin. Thank you. I love it when we get to when I get to talk to writers of nonfiction because it opens up a whole new world uh, to me. And you have a really interesting background in world conservation. Um, that must have led you to many interesting places and got you involved in many interesting projects, I should imagine. Actually, my main area of interest always was Madagascar. One of the things I did when I was working at the Conservation Monitoring Centre in Cambridge was to write an environmental profile in Madagascar, just at the time when the world was waking up to how important it was for biological diversity and conservation. So I just, by happenstance really, doing quite a lot of work on wildlife export from Madagascar, because at that stage they thought that perhaps there was something to be made out of uh, valuing their biodiversity by exporting their wildlife in the exotic pet trade. People became alarmed because, of course, Madagascar is a place which is suffering massive environmental degradation. And I was called in as, as their sort of expert and got quite involved in trying to set up controls for that and try to see if we could regulate the trade. And I've been backwards and forwards quite a lot of time since then. Uh, it certainly was the, one of the backgrounds behind my book about chameleons that I wrote, one of the first books I ended up writing. Right. Uh, Madagascar is a big island, isn't yeah. it? Famously, the fourth largest island in the world, and about the size of France. About the size of France and off the coast of Africa. And uh, it's of particular interest because the wildlife there you don't find anywhere Absolutely, else. Absolutely, because it's been isolated, they reckon, for about 120 million years. So all the animals and plants there have evolved in complete isolation from the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, humans first arrived there about 1,500 years ago. And mm. when people arrived, there was the most extraordinary fauna there. The famous elephant bird, which is believed to have inspired Marco Polo. Enormous great thing, nine, up to three metres tall, I think. There were lemurs that were the size of calves. There were pygmy hippopotamuses that probably drifted over from Africa and all sorts of other things. And people, settlers arrived about 1,500 years ago. And um, it's extraordinary, really, because the vegetation had certainly evolved, so it wasn't very adapted to fire. And as far as we know, when these first settlers arrived, pretty much the first thing they did was start setting fire to the place. And they cleared about 80% of the forest quite quickly, in fact. And a lot of animals and plants became extinct. And what we've got left now is really just the vestiges of what there was then. But it's still an extraordinary place with incredible numbers of animals and plants that aren't found anywhere else in the world. Amazing. Just listening to you talk about Madagascar, you're obviously very fond of this place. And I wonder, having such an interesting job, how you ever found time to write books for children? You've said that Chameleon was uh, your kind of transition into writing for children. I'd love to know what the motivation was behind that. Well, it was all a bit of an accident, really, because um, I had just gone freelance and a mutual friend, a good friend of mine said that there were some people at Walker Books who were doing some books for Sainsbury's with a conservation theme. And they wanted somebody to check over the information that was in the books to make sure that it was reliable and that I was the person who sort of sprang to mind. 
And after a few years of doing that, I started working with the very early Read and Wonder books, which you're probably familiar with, which were innovative series at the time. And the editor then asked me to provide, if I would be prepared to provide a bit of assistance on those. And after a few months of that, she just idly suggested, was be, would I be interested in having a go at writing one? So I went, oh, it never really occurred to me. So I went off and had a little think and thought, what I want to do is one about carnivorous plants, because they're wacky. And I didn't know of any books that were about carnivorous plants. So I drafted one and it actually had a fatal flaw in it. It didn't have a, a coherent structure. Ah. Was, and I sort of twigged what the problem was. And I came up with a structure for it, which was basically, this was a fictionalized version of me as a young child, becoming more and more obsessed with the carnivorous plants and become determined to find the biggest ones. So that was the structure in the end, was going from tiny ones to bigger and bigger and bigger ones and ending up with the Raja Pitcher plant, which is in Borneo. And that clinched it. And we, we off we went. And that was the first book. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting, there's a nice connection between what you said about finding a structure. Yeah. And one of the first questions that I was going to ask you about your two new books. Right. Because you could have a book about animal homes and all it shows you is one home, then the next home and then yes. the next home. But clearly these books do have a structure. I wonder, perhaps we should start with the animal homes. Yes. And uh, these books are amongst some of the youngest that you've done, aren't they? Absolutely. And tell us about the structure to begin with then. You know, it comes down to a kind of rhyme in the end. Yes. It's a, uh, I, was try, I was just looking at it this morning and trying to figure out what the rhyming structure was, and it's not a very coherent rhyme. <laughs> it's there. And that actually evolved, and that came, evolved gradually. Um, if I had to say anything, the inspiration was the book about frogs that I did a few years ago called Fabulous Frogs. Mm. And that one just sort of was one of those ones which they're pretty rare popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that came out in the end was very, very little different from the thing that I wrote on the train. Oh, if only that could work like that all the time. <laughs> no, no, not anymore, I don't think, yes. But um, we were looking for something for, very, for young children. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what about this sort of thing? You're quite right, actually, trying to figure out how, the, how you structure the thing. So... Again, it was really odd. The first bit sort of popped into my head, really, which is about contrasts, I think. So for animal homes, and following on to animal babies, I think the comparisons of big and small and tidy and untidy and all that kind of thing were the things that provided the structure to start with. Mm -hmm. And out of drafts of that, suddenly in my head there was these rather relentless rhymes that kept popping up and I thought well probably could do something with this we could turn it into something which will be enjoyable to read from beginning to end Mm. it's got a rhythm yeah that's that's the the text has a strong rhythm and actually those things like big and small um they work so well with your target readership because they're things that they are learning about they're concepts that they're beginning to understand so there's some fascinating homes. You know, for me, the mark of a good nonfiction uh, book, even for the youngest children, is that I'm going to find something in it new to me. Yeah. Because after all, an adult is sharing this and they want to be intrigued yes. and interested too. So 
the termites really grabbed my interest. Um, tell us a bit about termite homes. They're amazing, aren't they? They're extraordinary things. These incredible engineers, how they do it is still baffling, really, I think, because they can produce these things which are incredibly sophisticated physically. And they've in intrigued a lot of researchers. So, of course, what happens when you do a book like this is you, you trot something out and then you feel that you have to double check it because I'm rather obsessive about that sort of thing. So suddenly you're reading old papers in nature and things like that just to make sure that what you say is reliable. Mm -hmm. So termites are just extraordinary because they're a very ancient group and incredibly successful. They have the ability to digest, some of them the ability to digest cellulose, which very, very few animals do, which is the main material that is in plant cells. I always thought they were like ants, but they're not exactly ants, are no, they? No, they're not. Their they're, they're closest living relatives, I think, are cockroaches in the end, which is not so appealing. <laughs> they are, as I say, a very old group, but they've been uh, almost as sophisticated as ants in terms of the way their social structures work. And they they, they build these massive mounds, talking yeah. about their homes, but they don't live in that mound. They live at the bottom. It's a huge effort to go to, isn't it? Remarkable thing, I think. I'm and you talked about it having air conditioning. Yeah. I mean, you described it as air conditioning. Yeah. So what they have is they some of them they have these holes in the side, and as it so they are often in in quite arid places, and as the heat the air warms up in the morning, it it heats up the air and it pulls it through, mm -hmm. so that the air goes up, uh, the hot air rises and goes through in a sort of chimney effect, and it pulls cooler air which is lower in the ground into side holes around the, the nest in there which regulate the temperature wonderful amazing things and some of them even some of them are, are you get magnetic ones in which the the nests are, are on ridges and they're all aligned north south or in a particular direction and a lot of that is so that they can benefit from the heat in the mornings when the sun rises they they're on a flat side so it warms up and as the sun goes up the shadows on the on the nest become more vertical, so it becomes less exposed to the sun, so it cools off in the heat of the day. Clever little things. They really are. Clever. How on earth do they do that? <laughs> and uh, like a lot of these books published by Walker, there's often some more complex text, which is there for a number of reasons. It means that um, the books have a long life because they can be read by children as they uh, get older. Absolutely. But also for the adult to read and perhaps chat to yeah, the younger exactly. child about, uh, to kind of almost uh, translate it into language Absolutely. that the child can appreciate. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, as I was looking through some really interesting things, we've got Swifts that make their homes out of spit. The children are going to love that. And some that last for years and years. Some animals that build a new home every single day are uh, the orangutans. And as I was reading all of these, I wondered, both the books actually imply certain questions that you could talk about with children. Yeah. And it struck me that one of the interesting things um, here might be what can humans learn from the way that Absolutely. animals build their yeah. homes? Yeah. Have you got any thoughts about that? Well, apart from being tidier, <laughs> I had to slip that in. I'm going to tell you that the, the animals with really messy homes like me, that is bang to rights. It's absolutely true. <laughs> so I think that the resonances, I think, are very important in those books. It, as you say, things that children can identify with. 
and also not being judgmental at all, if you can possibly get away with it, I think. Mm. Just making people think about the different ways people live. Um, mm. I think that's really helpful. We didn't broach architects with architecture with this one at all, actually. We've skirted away from the idea of um, that you would then lead into something about human houses, because that somehow, I think, would seem to distract, I think, from the aim of the of the book to start with. And because of the readership as well, it would it might be a different book for a different Absolutely, uh, yeah. reader. Should we talk about animal babies? Yeah. Because honestly, there are some things in here that I was my mouth was open, <laughs> and uh, I, I've got to talk about a couple of instances or, or a couple of examples that you've given that just left me speechless. There's this. Gastric brooding frog. Oh, yes. Doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Uh-oh. Tell us about that frog. It's a Very me- sad that. I remember that because my first job in wildlife conservation was actually to write the mammal red, help write the mammal red data book, which was a, a sort of catalogue of species that were threatened with extinction. And when we start, when I started working there, the gastric brooding frog was still as far as anybody knew extant. Mm-hmm. It still existed in these mountains in Australia. And then in the course of the 80s, people went up successively to try and find the things. And by the end of the 80s, people concluded that both different kinds, there were two species that both were now extinct and nobody's seen them since then. There is still still these incredibly remote possibilities that tiny colonies still hang on somewhere because it's a big place, Australia, and a lot of it is less monitored than we would like to think. Mm. And things have a habit of popping up. Wow. Why were they interesting for your book? I mean, the name sort of says it, but we might have to tell our listeners what gastro-brooding frogs do. Extraordinary adaptation, because frogs are remarkable things, really. There's an awful lot. You could write books and books about frogs. Um, So with the gastro-brooding frog, what happened was, what happens is that the egg is laid by the female and fertilised by the male externally. And when the egg has been fertilised, the female would swallow the eggs. She would actually eat the eggs and they would then sit in her stomach to develop. And of course, really, really hard to get your head around that because basically the female had to not just stop feeding, but she had to switch off all her, ga- all her digestive juices because mm-hmm. most stomachs are incredibly acid. They have very low pH, so they would have dissolved the eggs extremely fast. If you were to swallow a frog's egg now, it wouldn't be around for very long. Mm -hmm. So she would suppress all her normal feeding mechanisms until the baby frogs had developed. And then she would literally sick them up. (laughs) And that's why I, I can tell you the inspiration for this book was for years and years and years, I wanted to write a book called Bringing Up Baby. Because that was supposed to be the original title. Sticking with the amphibians for a moment, on the facing page is something about pipitoads. Yeah, the pipitoads. Amazing. Just tell us about them and their babies. So, literally, the pipitoads are marvelous, marvelous squash looking things. They're entirely aquatic and they're quite big. They can grow to, what, 10, 15 centimeters long. And um, the females have this very, very soft skin on the back of the, on their backs. So, when the egg is and the eggs are produced, again, like most amphibians, or all amphibians, the eggs are externally fertilised by the male. And then I think the male helps to press the eggs down onto the female's back, and they sink into these little spongy pockets that form on the back. 
then the pockets close over and then the frog again develops within these pockets so that they are protected as much as they can be from predators and the rest. Uh, and then eventually the thing pops open and out this baby frog comes. Wow, that's wonderful. And yeah. we have to say, you know, Jane McGuinness's illustration have a real warmth to them. Yeah, very pleased with that, I think. It's lovely. The animals are very slightly, very slightly anthropomorphized, yeah. um, particularly through uh, their expressions. Yeah. Not, the their, not so much their behavior, but yeah. their expressions, which gives that emotional connection, I think, for younger readers. Yeah. She's very good at the eyes, I think, but she's also been very accurate, I think. So we go back to the Holmes book, the, the spiders are actually completely realistic, I think, and the bee. They don't have little smiley faces or anything like that. Is there a sense in which we think that mammals are cuter then than insects <laughs> and arachnids? <laughs> yeah, I think I think probably, yes. I'm not going to dispute that. Mm. So are there any other ideas that are brewing away for more books, either in this series for younger children? or have Yes, you no, I confess up. We've got another two on the go now, actually. Uh, we're doing one on camouflage. And one on animals that make tools. Oh, interesting. Because for a long time, people said that's what distinguished humans from the rest of the animal world, that we could make tools and they couldn't. And of course, you then again, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it gets slightly philosophical trying to work out what counts as a tool and what doesn't. What did so you we've, decide? We've, <laughs> we've been a bit flexible on that one, I have to say. <laughs> so for example, does a... An Egyptian vulture throwing a stone at an ostrich egg counters tool using. And you've obviously decided it does. <laughs> we have decided it does. <laughs> I think we were allowed to be a little bit generous on that one. Yeah, very interesting, though. Uh, just before we end, everything that we've talked about so far is to do with wildlife in one way or another. Um, but you have actually written things that are entirely different. And there are a couple of books in particular uh, that it's worth us recalling, I think, uh, both illustrated by Chris Riddell, much longer texts, Don Quixote yeah. and Gulliver's Travels. Remind us a little bit about those. It was one of the editors who's gone now at Walker who first suggested Gulliver's Travels to me. And I wrote a first little sample chapter and it was too long and too difficult. And they said, just make it shorter and tighter. So I went off and did that and people were quite happy with it. We had a hilarious time because if you're familiar with the original at all, it pulls no punches. And there's certain episodes which are rather embarrassing even for adults these days, I think, <laughs> especially towards the end with the yahoos. Yeah, uh, because Swift was famously scatological, mm. <laughs> and I had some marvelous Barneys with my editor because I tried to sneak as much of the rude stuff in as I possibly could. And eventually, he said the reason is because if we put it in, the Americans will just refuse to do the book, or I'll just cross it all out anyway. So at that point, I had to raise the right flag and <laughs> delete a load of stuff. Mm. Although I will tell people now that Chris, being Chris managed to sneak a couple of rudities into the pictures. He would. There's nothing like <laughs> telling kids that when you do a little, when you do a presentation <laughs> about it, to send them all ferreting off like mad to try and find the bit. Yeah. Can I just ask you, have you got any yearnings to write that kind of thing again? 
Oh, uh, be lovely, actually. I I have to say that Don Quixote, which is famously an intractable book, incredibly long, and I fell in love with it. And I'm still very proud of the writing that came out of that. Actually, I think it's one of the better things I ever did. Mm. And I would still love to do more of that kind of thing. Mm. Well, do you know it's been lovely catching up with you. I've learnt so much about termites and amphibians. Yes. And- Animal homes and animal babies. I'm looking forward especially to animal tools, it has to be said. (laughs) I'm not sure what the production schedule is, but that should be out fairly soon, I hope. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Martin. Martin, Nikki, it's been really nice. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.